So does this podcast oh. make you guys feel like rock stars? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Yeah. All right. Parties. All right. You ready? Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is confused by the latest health study, as I am by how we could have COVID models that do not accurately predict what is happening today, which is something that actually happened during the early days of the pandemic. We had some models which had incorrect predictions for the actual day that it was, which I found fascinating. I bring this up only because today we are going to be talking about COVID models. So I thought that was an appropriate introduction. Nick, I need some, I need some sound effects here. <laughs> yeah. See, Nick has sound effects today. So we're, we're, um, we're, we're going to use those liberally throughout. No, we're not. Anyway, I provide I, my own sound effects. Yeah, Thank Chris doesn't need any any laugh track. Chris provides his own laugh track. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health from the Boston University School of Public Health. And we have what I'm going to call a special guest, but is really just our returning regular host, Dr. Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health, back from his sabbatical, but only temporarily. Welcome back, Chris. Yeah, hi. Hi, Matt. Hi, Brick. It's really nice to be here. How are you all doing? Doing well, Chris. How is the sabbatical going? Well, I have to say that I I, I think the Netherlands are, are wonderful. I was so happy being there. Happy, of course, to be back, but uh, I'm I'm also uh, eager to, to go back and continue the sabbatical. Yeah, so Chris is not done with this sabbatical, so we just have him here. For a couple of months to be with the family and do summer vacation stuff and all that. Stuff. And plus, there were many life events. Yeah, my mother and mother-in-law both had their 80th birthday party. Oh, and fantastic. Two daughters graduated from institutions, and there were other birthday parties as well. And, uh, and we have a wedding coming up at the end of August. Do you want to give our listeners an address where they should send the gifts to? Uh, sure. Yeah. You can no, don't, to, don't, don't, okay. don't, 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 yeah. don't. 801 Mass Ave. There you go. Okay, so uh, we also have a fantastic guest today, which is Dr. Brooke Nichols from the department, also from the Department of Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome to the podcast, Brooke. Thanks, Matt and Chris. And Chris didn't mention that the summer in Europe also just empties out, so there's no reason to be there. I, so All this of the I Netherlands find, is gone. <laughs> yeah, this I find fascinating. Like when you go to cities like Paris in August and all of these businesses, like it's prime tourist season. And then you see all these businesses that are like, sorry, we're closed for four weeks because we're going on vacation, <laughs> which I totally understand. But at the same time, it's it's you would never see that happen in in the USA. So the reason, well, other than that she is fantastic, the reason we are having Brooke here with us on this particular episode is we are continuing on our series that we are doing related to the strategic research directions that the School of Public Health has. And I mentioned this on the last podcast. There are five areas that that our school has been investing in. Those are cities and health, climate, the planet and health, health inequities, mental and behavioral health, and infectious diseases, which is why we have Brooke here today, because we are going to talk about COVID modeling. She is a COVID modeler. She's a modeler in general, and she is the person that I turn to whenever I have my modeling questions. So we are going to continue in that vein. So now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a COVID modeling study, and this is a historical study. So we're going to go back to the beginning of the pandemic for this one. Then in our second part of the podcast, that's our deep dive. We're going to pepper 
Brooke with questions about modeling and the importance of modeling and why they are something that we should all be paying attention to. And then in our third segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, which Chris still insists on calling the weird wacky, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or we just find fascinating. So segment one. So we're talking about an article, as I said, it was a model of COVID transmission. And I, I just want to make the distinction for our listeners who may not be as familiar, these kinds of models that we're talking about today are very different from the kinds of models that I am typically working with, which would be a statistical model where we're trying to find patterns in data to be able to identify causal relationships or maybe just describing what's happening. Here, we're talking about models where we actually try to project out into the future what is going to happen based on what we understand about the dynamics of how infectious diseases move between person to person. They can be applied to other things, but I think infectious diseases are the place where you'll see them the most. The study was published in Science, and it was in this was in April of 2020. So so think back to beginning of the pandemic when we were really trying to understand what was coming. And I will say those of us who were had to go on the BBC and various other media outlets at that time and say what we thought was going to happen. I don't know about you, Chris, but I said some things that I really wish I could could take back. Can can you give us an example yeah, of I said, something you uh, feel like you got wrong? Roughly in I think it was roughly in February I said something along the lines of, you know, you know, it, there clearly is something going on. It did the, you know, it's not it's not good, but I really think we're going to be able to contain this thing. I I really do. I I wish I could go back and not have said that. Yeah. I I I I think my first public proclamation about this was in the first lecture of my Global Health 760 class. And the outbreak had just started, and I was following the posts, I think, from the South China Daily News, which at that time was was remarkably progressive. And I think they got shut down later. But at the time, they were a fantastic source of news. And then I said to my students on that first lecture, in my professional opinion, I think we're in for a really, really tough ride, and this is going to be a disaster. And you were correct. And I was correct. But that was not based on any modeling. That was purely empiric. Like, I think, I think this is going to be a problem. <laughs> no, but I, I, so, so let me just tell you this, Chris, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but my, my sister-in-law who listens to this podcast quite a bit, you said on this podcast somewhere in the neighborhood of, I don't know, March, I don't remember what it was. You said how bad this was going to be. It was when we sort of first went into remote and she says that is the first time when she realized when you said it. Before that, she was like, oh, you know, it's probably going to be okay. So there's a member of the Fox clan who actually takes me seriously. That is a terrifying thought. Not not Fox, but it's my my sister-in-law. But yes, there is is somebody out there who does take you seriously. What's your name? I don't think I should... Be saying names on air. <laughs> well, to, to, to Matt Fox's sister-in-law, uh, I, I, I appreciate your, your confidence, and I, I sure wish I had been wrong about that one. Yeah, but, I but it turns out I was, I, was, I was spot on that this was bad. My first proclamation about my vision of the, what was going to happen with the pandemic was back in January of 2020, the end of, towards the end of January, where we had a faculty meeting with you know, the lunch hour, and everyone was talking about various things. And I said, this coronavirus is going to be a big deal. It's going to be a big deal. <laughs> Yeah. You know, a number of years ago, now since we're going off into into reminiscence land, I'd gone to an academic conference in Vancouver, Canada. And there was this uh, terrific bar slash nightclub place where they had live music, but they also had like uh, paint your own easel. Yeah, they give you easels and paints and you could paint 
terrible paintings. I you, never you paint, paint. You don't paint the easel. No, you you paint the the canvas. Yeah, but you know, it. it was one of those thematic, just like painted plate for adults. But yes. anyway, and so I'd gone there, and it's all shared tables because it was you know it's very sort of chummy and Canadian, and I was sitting next to or across from, excuse me, this man and woman. And he was very sort of sullen and didn't want to talk and kind of stared away and wouldn't make eye contact with me. But she was very sort of, you know, uh, initially kind of politely chatty because he wasn't talking and I was, you know, you know, I talk all the time. So it was easy for her to have a conversation with me. And she said at some point, so why are you here in Vancouver? And I said, well, I'm, I'm here to attend a conference. And a few years she's like, are you a, like an actuary or a vacuum you know, a vacuum salesman, like what sort of conference is this? Like, you know, boring middle-aged guy that you are. And I'm like, oh no, I'm, I'm here for a, an infectious disease conference. And she's like, oh, infectious diseases. That's really interesting. And then, and she's like, so like, what, what is the worst infectious disease you've ever seen? And we see got out onto, into this sort of description of like really, you know, terrifying things that I'd seen in my clinical career. And now the guy was very interested. And it turned out that she was a producer and he was the, the lead actor for Stargate. Uh-huh. That stars sure, yeah. st- science fiction TV serial. Yeah. And so I got to meet them and, and we spend the entire evening talking about infectious diseases. And at one point they said to me, what, what do you think is like, what is your sort of nightmare scenario? And I basically distra- described uh, coronavirus yep. that, you know, some sort of influenza like, you know, much more aggressive virus that spreads easily through aerosols. That's going to be the one that causes a global catastrophe. And, and I, I hate again to say that I was right. Though I was not, you know, alone in this. A lot of people right. were saying the same thing, including the people of the Office of Pandemic Preparedness, yeah. who were all fired by former President Trump before the pandemic. Uh, brilliant timing, I would say. Yeah. So here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Okay, so I think this is officially the longest, the longest intro to a, a paper we've oh, ever wait. had. Brooke wants to say something. Oh, Chris hates saying that he's right. Chris, yeah, I hate saying that I'm right. Chris has always hated saying that he's right. Yeah, yeah. I hate that so much. Okay, so this, the title of the study, so this is published in Science. It was called Projecting the Transmission Dynamics of SARS-CoV-2 Through the Post-Pandemic Period, which, I mean, the fact that we were thinking about the post-pandemic period in April of 2020 is already amazing to me. So this was uh, first author Stephen Kistler of the Departments of Immunology and Infectious Diseases across the river from here at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. So again, this was April of 2020. I think actually we're on the same side of the river. Oh, right. Sorry. Harvard is across the river. The School of Public Health is actually on the same side of the river. They're on you, the other side of Huntington Avenue. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> all of our Boston listeners will will know that, or all of our listeners who spend time in Boston. So there's a couple of headlines on this one. So this is from August of 2020. MSN says, the coronavirus is never going away. Yahoo News from August 12th of 2020. Coronavirus, does the common cold protect you from COVID? Obviously, these were headlines that were you know, taking on, they, they weren't just specifically reporting on the, on the paper. And then uh, another one from MSN, America's COVID-19 summer was terrible. Here's why winter 2020 could be worse. And then in later in September, how we survived the winter. So going back to all of these earlier papers. So Brooke and Chris and I, you know, had a little bit more trouble reading this paper because it's complex and the methods are not methods that we typically work on. So can you talk us through what, what they did in this study and what they what they found? Sure. So this paper was trying to do a number of things. So first, it's trying to figure out how much SARS-CoV-2, the, the degree of seasonal variation, the, that seasonal variation would affect transmission, the impact of the duration of immunity, and also the degree of cross-immunity between SARS-CoV-2 and then other circulating seasonal coronaviruses. 
And so that was sort of the first thing that they were trying to do with, with their modeling. And then the second part what they were trying to do within this paper was to see what the impact of different types of social distancing measures, what those would have on sort of the, the peak intensity and the duration of epidemic waves with and without seasonal forcing. So really looking at the, the impact of seasonality on on transmission. Uh, sorry, can I just stop you there? Can you explain what seasonal forcing is? Because that was going to be one of my questions for you. Same here. So seasonal forcing is really when, so for example, for flu, we always have a flu season that, that occurs in the end of the autumn, for example. Mm-hmm. And that happens, I mean, mo- that's in the Northern Hemisphere in certain areas, so it's not across the board. But that's when sort of the weather and people's behavior come together to increase transmission. So either people are moving indoors because mm-hmm. it's cold outside and everyone's now congregating inside and or the humidity and temperature also aid aerosol transmission during that time period. And that is depending on the virus. And so you'll see this at different times, different timings for different viruses, depending on also what's currently circulating. And so seasonal forcing is really all about people's behavior and the actual temperature and the season itself, humidity, et cetera. So there seems to be lots of, I mean, there is seasonal variation for a lot of influenza-like illnesses, ILIs. So for flu, for example, but also seasonal coronaviruses. So seasonal Mm -hmm. coronaviruses also have these wintertime outbreaks as well. We also see these in schools and stuff. And I think originally, back in the day, February vacation and and Christmas vacation Mm -hmm. from schools were really designed to help get all these diseases out of the schools and then come back to school so that we could start fresh without continuing this cycle of transmission within schools. And so I didn't realize that. It's kind of like a lockdown, a periodic lockdown to sort of reset the infectious disease clock. Whereas now it seems to go the opposite direction. These breaks tend to increase transmission because people then, you know, go away and travel and start well they have i should say anyway they could bring back new things or they could transmit it to older populations yeah if they're on breaks with other older family members so it really does depend on the the sort of immune profile of people they're interacting with and the type of pathogen we're talking about Mm -hmm. but in general because you start to see lots of people lots of kids losing school days towards the end of the season like okay we need a break (laughs) and then we start over again so in order to address those they created a deterministic compartmental model. And so this means, I think a lot of us have heard of SIR models where you are susceptible, you can then move to be infected, and then you can be recovered. And so and the, the way that people move between compartments is how infectious the virus is, how many contacts people have, sort of the duration of infectiousness, and the actual infectiousness of a given individual at a moment in time. And the number of people that are currently infectious, because the more people that are currently infectious, the more mm-hmm. transmission that can occur. And within a typical SIR model, once you move towards the the R part, assuming that you could no so once you're recovered in a classic SIR model, you're assumed to be immune. So these people can no longer get infected, reinfected, etc. And so within this model, they also looked at the SEIR part of the model, which the E is exposed technically, but mm-hmm. it's really trying to capture this pre-symptomatic transmission that occurs. And that's really what drove a lot of the transmission for SARS-CoV-2 was this pre-symptomatic phase where people felt mostly fine or completely fine and continued about their business and then could transmit in that time period. And so that's sort of the critical component of these of these models for SARS-CoV-2 as compared to SARS-CoV-1, for example, where there wasn't that pre-symptomatic transmission period. 
And so the authors in this paper also had S-E-I-R-S model. So they allowed people after they became recovered to be susceptible again. So this is more closely what we ended up Mm -hmm. observing in in real life. (laughs) I know for myself, I am part of that circle of recover to susceptible again and infected again. So So have have all three of us had it at this point and Nick too? Uh, Nick has not. What? I have. I have. I have. How many times? Uh, Once to my knowledge. Once to my knowledge. Twice. Twice. Forgot twice. Okay. Four vaccines, two natural infections. I am full of immunity. (laughs) You've got a lot of it. Yep. But maybe not to anything that's currently circulating. So Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So they developed this S-E-I-R-S model to be able to look at multiple circulating pathogens at the same time. So really, I think one of their initial hypotheses was that if there is some sort of cross immunity to the existing circulating seasonal coronaviruses, that that could affect what we see in terms of a peak epidemic, the number of people that would be infected at a peak of an epidemic wave, and the likelihood of seasonality of the virus going forward. And so to do this, they basically created this compartmental model to allow for people to be infected with one or the other, and then allowed for cross immunity between the two at, to differing degrees. Mm-hmm. And so that's what differentiates this model compared to sort of a classic SIR model. And so in the first part of their work, they look at the effect of depletion of susceptibles and seasonality on the effective reproductive number by strain and season. Okay, <laughs> so can you, can you tell us what the effective reproductive number is? Yeah. So the R naught, so the reproductive number at time zero when an entire population is susceptible to infection, that is, if I'm infected and the population is completely susceptible to infection, the R naught is, on average, how many people I would go on to infect with this given pathogen. And so in the beginning of the epidemic, the R naught was thought to be something like three, two and a half or three. And then the effective reproductive number is what is the reproductive number at time X or time T? So wherever we are at this point in time, because that is also dependent on the number of people that have already been infected, the number of people that are immune or have some cross immunity. So when the population is no longer completely susceptible and we can modulate the effective reproductive number by social distancing, by masking, by vaccination, testing and isolation, Mm -hmm. all of these different measures. So all of that can modulate our effective reproductive number. And so within this paper, they were looking at, well, what does seasonality do in terms of the effect on the effective reproductive number? So at different parts of the year, where do we expect to see increased transmission due to the seasonality alone? So an increase in our effective reproductive number versus when do we expect that that effect to be less? And then they looked at that as well as the effect of cross immunity between two seasonal coronaviruses. So not SARS-CoV-2, but Common cold viruses, basically. Two common cold viruses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then in the beginning, they're really demonstrating the the impact of that seasonality and seasonal forcing has on the reproductive number sort of overshadows to some degree, at least in the beginning of an epidemic wave, the effect of cross immunity. And so I think that was sort of showing the dynamic effects that these three things have in common. So the dynamic effect between time of the season and cross immunity of more than one pathogen and what to expect there. Now we we bring in SARS-CoV-2. So is it possible that I can proliferate at any time of the year? And they're able Mm. to show that that is in fact possible. And 
spring and summer establishments of, of the virus would favor outbreaks that have lower peaks because of the seasonal forcing. Mm-hmm. So if SARS-CoV-2 receded in, let's say, April, May, then because of the seasonality and the fact that it's not sort of the season for a seasonal coronavirus or what have you, then we would see sort of a lower peak than we would if it were seeded, if the sort of the new wave were seeded in October, November, and we see a much greater wave, much larger wave. So that is the first thing that they were able to show was the introducing SARS-CoV-2 into their model. The second thing that they really looked at was immunity to SARS-CoV-2, and that if immunity is not permanent, it will enter into regular circulation. So SARS-CoV-2 will be with us for basically forever if immunity is not permanent. That was the second thing that they were able to show. Which is where we ended up with not complete immunity. (laughs) Exactly. And what's interesting, I mean, they also describe in the paper that the duration of immunity to the seasonal coronaviruses is about one year. And I think that the evolution of the pathogen so far has sort of outpaced that. I mean, so there's the duration that we have our duration of immunity to what we've been infected with or immunized with. Really don't know how long that that lasts for, for each of the previous variants that we might've had. So I might still have some residual immunity to what I was infected with from Delta. But now that I'm being exposed to entirely new pathogen, let's say BA5, I'm still completely susceptible to that. And so Mm -hmm. I might still have this duration of immune response that might be a year or longer to Delta, but now I'm being exposed to basically a new virus. Mm -hmm. So my previous immunity doesn't matter. But I think it was interesting that they used that one year as sort of a baseline of potential immunity from this. And then the reason sort of that we see infection wave after infection wave might be different from what they show in this paper, basically the evolution of the pathogen rather than Mm -hmm. duration of immunity. But I think that's sort of an interesting concept and important concept. Then the third thing that they showed was that high seasonal variation in transmission will actually lead to smaller peak incidents during the initial pandemic wave, but then could result in large wintertime outbreaks. So this is, you know, a little bit based on when we're seeding the epidemic and what we would end up seeing. And so this is, it's hard to know what actually happened because there were so few diagnostic tests available back in the the first wave. And so between social distancing and hard lockdowns and all of that, you know, the actual proportion of people infected during the first wave back when it was seeded in March, April. It's really hard to figure out whether or not that's what actually happened. But I think the point that something seeded in the the spring or summer would have technically would have a lower peak intensity. Then their fourth finding, if immunity to SARS-CoV-2 is permanent, the virus could disappear for five years or more after causing a major outbreak. And so I thought this was also particularly interesting. So if immunity were permanent, basically, until everyone is infected or the majority of people are infected, such that our effective reproductive number cannot come above one, then you'd see a complete fizzling out of circulation of SARS-CoV-2 after a certain number of years. And this does make sense. And then sort of the reason that after five years, you'd see potential new outbreaks is the growth of the susceptible pool. So people are born, (laughs) and then after five years, you have this sort of a certain critical mass of people under the age of children, under the age of five, that could then sustain a new outbreak of SARS-CoV-2 in the future. Mm -hmm. So that is related to their fourth finding, yeah. And then the fifth one, which I thought was very interesting, I don't think this is the case at all, unfortunately, but it would have been interesting, that if you had SARS-CoV-2 and it were to provide cross-immunity, to other pathogens, mm-hmm. but the immunity to SARS-CoV-2 were permanent, that you'd actually also see dying out of the other uh, seasonal coronaviruses. 
So, oh, that, so in other words, that would have been if, damn cool. <laughs> in other words, if 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 this had led to both permanent immunity to SARS-CoV-2, but it could also, in theory, if this were the case, it would also you'd see the disappearance of common cold. Yeah, or, or at least some, these two some. common two causes caused by some. these two. Patterns. Yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly. that's so interesting. Too bad that didn't work out. Yeah, but, too bad. Yeah, but you one, you know one might argue that that. You know, if that were true, surely it, you know, we wouldn't have had SARS-CoV-2 in the first place because of the presence of these these two other circulating coronaviruses. This was, I have to say, this was this was this was a theory that always sort of stuck in my 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 mind and, and got a little bit well, sort of jammed up there. That you know, the the postulation of of effective cross immunity to circulating coronaviruses that cause the common cold. Why then would we have an outbreak of SARS-CoV-2 if that were true? So I guess I'm I'm disputing the the theory. Well, you can have different degrees of cross immunity, right? So cross immunity from one seasonal coronavirus to another is not the same from that back to the other one. So you have different levels of cross sure immunity, right? And so, and I think also the the theory that for SARS-CoV one that there was very long lasting immunity, and that I'm not sure the extent to which SARS-CoV one also conferred any cross immunity to seasonal coronavirus. No idea, mm-hmm. but worth looking into. Probably, yeah, probably not enough people infected for us to know that one. Yeah, I mean, there was never an opportunity to test the theory because SARS-CoV-1 happened and didn't recur. So we can't say that there was long-lasting immunity because the outbreak ended. Right, good point. the virus went extinct. Yeah, good point. You know, we could go and find those people and expose them and see if they're truly immune, but people might object. But if we could look at their blood over time, if they were collected in a serial study, you could then look to see if there were presence of, of... Sure seasonal coronaviruses over time. Anyway. Super complicated. Okay, so do, did we hit all the major points from the from the study? That was, I mean, those were the big ones in terms of the interaction between the seasonal coronavirus and SARS-CoV-2. Then they okay. go on to look at the impact of different types of social distancing and effect of social distancing on, on R-naught in reducing peak transmission and really looking at sort of the duration of social distancing measures and other measures put in place. And then essentially showing that Really, social distancing, you have to put it in place for the whole time if you want to see an effect. Otherwise, the coronavirus will just come back. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. That, that was kind of the... shown. That, I mean, that's true. That's what happens, right? Um, it, it, it really, I mean, I, that seems to me that one of the things that, that very clearly they, they got right in, in this model for sure. Yeah. I, not that the other things are necessarily wrong. These were what if scenarios. These were not meant yeah. to be, this is what's going to happen. These were, if this is true. And one of the things I wrote down was I liked about this paper was that it's so much of it is, if this, then this. It wasn't Absolutely. saying, we know because it was too early for us to have known. Mm-hmm. But I, I do worry that some of the models get interpreted as we know. And so this is what's going to happen. And then if it doesn't happen, we say, oh, you know, you don't know what you're doing. But predicting the future is hard. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So we we so we have this paper and we're looking back on it. And I mean, it's, it's very easy to Monday morning quarterback it and say what you would do differently if, you know, you could go back in time knowing what you know now. But, you know, let's start from the standpoint of, of given where they were. Chris, you, you and I both read this paper and probably had far less ability to critique it. But I am curious what your thoughts are when you were reading this or if there are any things that you want to ask as follow-up questions. Well, of course, the, the most interesting part of this is to go back and, and sort of Monday morning quarterback. Monday morning quarterback, right? <laughs> so, of of these, you know, I, and I think they they were they were very careful. They were 
not to say this is what will happen. This was this was like you know a Christmas Carol and the Ghost of Christmas Future. We're seeing things as they might be, not as they must be. And so you know, and they they caveat that all of the place because I think this is this is how these papers can be easily misinterpreted. That that we are you know th- th- this is not the Oracle of Delphi. They are saying under these sets of, of of assumptions, given our current understanding and our current knowledge, and these parameters that we put into our model, and recognizing that there are many others that we don't know, you know what might happen. And I and I kind of feel like this this is this is maybe a, a point where I would I would love to hear Brooks take on this because the, the, you know, the criticism of models always seems to be that we, that they are treated as if they, this is from the Oracle of Delphi. And when things don't turn out, people then say, Oh, see, you can't trust models. But I think that's not what the models, at least the the careful modelers are trying to say. So I'm going to pass to you actually before, because I have lots of other things I want to say, but I think this is, this is a really important point that I'd love your perspective on. Yeah, I think a really sort of good modeling studies show, especially if we're trying to show what might happen in the future with all the uncertainty, really careful modeling studies such as this one shows we don't, you know, states, we don't know all these things, but if certain things are true, this is what it will look like. And that kind of helps us as we go forward and we learn new things. We can even look back to a paper like this and say, okay, we know there's no cross immunity between seasonal coronaviruses. So we're going to like not look at figures 2A through 2C or whatever it might be but we might be able to still learn something from 2D and 2E because that might still reflect sort of the information that we have now and allows us to adapt what we think over time. But that would take a careful reader and interpreter of of the work, as well as the careful modeling and presentation of the modeling such that they have done as well. And I think that that often doesn't happen and often sort of news bits are pulled out from articles and amplified rather than sort of the nuance of, of what it could mean. And I think interpreting nuances is always difficult, especially for large audiences. And, and so, Brooke, what what is the what is the value of a paper like this in April of 2020 when we don't know all that much at the time? It, it, what is the value of a paper like this in terms of decisions that people want to make? Because, as you say, I mean, what this model to me says is here are a bunch of things that we don't know. If we make certain assumptions, this is what we can expect, but we don't know which is going to turn out to be the right answers at this point. And so does it, does this facilitate decision-making in, in, in any way? So I think the unknowns around the seasonal coronaviruses were probably, that that was almost too unknown to be particularly helpful, Mm -hmm. but in Mm -hmm. terms of what they did in terms of their work on social distancing measures and seasonal transmission and timing of when you need to enact social distancing for it to be effective. I think that was extraordinarily helpful for decision-making, you know, if people could interpret, read this carefully. And so especially looking at sort of the duration and the importance of the duration of social distancing measures and and sort of what you need to do and when. Most of the goal of their work was to look at making sure that critical care capacity was not breached Mm -hmm. rather than trying to completely suppress transmission. And so I think they did a really good job looking or showing that this is what might happen if, you know, if you only enact social distancing for a few months or for, or for a few weeks, what you'd expect, especially going into the fall and winter of the following season. I think that was actually very helpful early on. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Chris, I, I interrupted you. You, you did not actually. I'm, I, I, the, the comment I wanted to, to bring up at some point, and maybe I'll raise it today is, is, is again, another question for Brooke, which is that in these SIR, SEIR 
models. Ours recovered. But what we have learned about this virus and, and, and its many subvariants is how complicated the immune response to this virus is. And so that this term R, which is just a number, doesn't seem to capture it very well anymore when we're dealing with something where, you know, there's a, a substantial disconnect. You are a perfect case study, right? Four vaccines and twice infected. And I wouldn't be surprised if you were infected a third time. It wouldn't surprise me or shock me in the least. And, and yet uh, I, what would shock me is if you ended up in the ICU or dead. That, that would totally right. stun me. And so when we're thinking about immune, we, we, we are thinking about it in an, an entirely simplistic way as a using these models as a binary, that somehow immune equals non, non-contagious, whereas immune also means non-killable, and that those two are not the same. Right, that it is the it is a much higher bar to render one so immune that they cannot become infected and cannot transmit, compared with rendering someone with memory B cells and T cells that are capable of responding to an infection promptly, months or years after an exposure, as it turns out, and can rally in that moment and provide you with a, with sufficient immunity so that you do not die or become seriously ill. Those are very different things, as it turns out. And, and I don't think I've, I've seen an example of this quite so clearly before in infectious diseases is, is where we, you know, we have such a separation between infectable and infectious and the serious consequences of, of these diseases. And this is borne out in the media, which obsesses constantly about waning antibody levels. Mm-hmm. But it is not that simple, right? right? It is not that simple. And the antibody levels tell you something about your likely ability to resist an exposure, but they are not the ultimate measure of outcome by any means. And, and that, that seems to have been completely missed. And I'm wondering, like, now as a, as a, in, in the modeling community, how do you start to, to wrestle with this fact that R is not R, but it is sort of like it's a bunch of different things all happening at once? And like, that, that seems to be taking something very complicated and making it even more complicated. But I'm curious, where do you go with that? It's flipping complicated. And so one thing that we do is separate out susceptible compartment in general. So once you have recovered and then you are, you know, theoretically susceptible again, you have different levels of susceptibility either to infection or to severe disease. We we can separate that out and say, okay, if you've been vaccinated and you're exposed to variant X, what's the likelihood that you get infected given that you're exposed? You can also look at different pathways for people that have sort of vaccination or previous infection or both and the likelihood that they end up with severe disease. And so it doesn't need to be, it's not like a four or five box model, but really like quite substantial in terms of different pathways. And a lot of how we've been handling this now in our modeling work has been to use an agent-based simulation model where each individual can have some combination of vaccination and previous infection. The problem is that we get into the space of the unknown of the, of new variants. We don't know what new variants might look like. We don't know the level of cross immunity. But, you know, me having one J&J vaccine, three Pfizer vaccines, you know, a Delta and an Omicron BA1, does that give me more protection from BA5? I don't know. Probably, <laughs> and to I some we degree. Don't, we don't have enough, like, data to actually parameterize any of, like, any of these models in a particularly meaningful way. Yeah. So, you know, we're not going to be able to predict what the new variant is or looks like. And given sort of the vast heterogeneity and the underlying immunity of the population, it become excessively difficult. And so a lot of ways that we handle this now is modulating the effective reproductive number to account for differing levels of underlying population immunity to a new variant. That, that's sort of the main way mm-hmm. to do it. And mm-hmm. also including vaccination because of this very clear impact on severe disease and, yeah. and mortality. I'm I'm glad you raised that because it actually was another thought that had been sort of bouncing around, which is how differently 
this virus, this family of viruses, I guess we can call it. I don't even know if we can officially call it a virus anymore as opposed to a, a constantly evolving cluster of viruses. But how, how different our experience with this has been compared with, say, influenza, where the R effective for influenza in any given year is like one and a half to two and a half. And it seems to live there forever. And sometimes it's a little lower, you know, and it's, it's like, it, you know, that's still plenty infectious enough to cause a, you know, an influenza outbreak every year and then a pandemic every 10 years or so. But what we don't see is that the, that the influenza virus responds to vaccinations and to natural acquiring immunity by ramping up. It's, it's our effective as we have seen with the coronavirus, that, that every iteration of variant has been more contagious than the one before it, presumably because it's, it's responding to evolutionary forces that such that only the viruses that are most contagious are able to spread. But its capacity to become more and more and more contagious as community-wide immunity rises is astonishing to me, because we don't actually see that yeah. with many other diseases. It's, it's a, this is a really new thing, in my view. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's that necessarily that SARS-CoV-2 is becoming more and more and more transmissible. It's just, it's evolved to evade immunity more and more. And so I, like the effective reproductive number, it's still not terribly high, but just the susceptible pool with each new variant has grown dramatically because everyone that didn't have BA1 is susceptible to BA5. And you could have had Delta, but you're susceptible to BA5. I'm not sure I quite agree with that because I, I think it's it's both, you know, I, I, because when you look at the, like the, the binding kinetics of of the the variants. What you find is that they they're more effective at binding to their receptors, and so they're they're they are actually more contagious rather than less. And they've also changed in terms of the co-receptors that they they bind to. So you know one of the reasons that the the Omicron variants are so peculiarly infectious is because they the this sort of second population of co-receptors. By which I mean, it's like you imagine a cell, it's got a re receptor on it that binds to the spike protein, but binding to the spike protein, the virus binding, you know, the spike protein binding to its, the ACE2 receptor doesn't allow the virus to enter and infect the cell. It requires a co-receptor to then bring it into the cell. And the second family of co-receptors is quite different from the earlier variants to the later variants. Such the earlier variants, the co-receptors were, were heavily represented deep in the lungs, which is probably why the virus was so much more lethal because it was causing, causing a viral pneumonia. Whereas the, the, the co-receptors that bind Omicron are predominantly in the upper respiratory tract, which accounts for why it tends to cause more of a common cold-like illness, but also why it is so much more con contagious because the receptors are right there at the point of contact. They don't have to penetrate deep into the lung to cause an infection. So there's a, there's a, a huge evolutionary advantage to shifting its, and that has actually driven up the R naught of the virus itself. It is more contagious than it was, not just as a fact that it has to, you know, escape immunity. And that is also a part of this, this complex evolving, you know, event going on. Yes. Cross fingers. I agree. Yeah, and they're intertwined, right? I mean, yeah, yeah they're, they're part of it's, it is a Gordian knot. Yeah. Okay, so so I'm just going to expand out. So we essentially, unlike in previous episodes, we've combined segment one and segment two. And I, the the one question I want to ask Brooke is: so we've we've seen these models under a microscope like we've never seen before. I mean, this is probably something that 
the average person pays zero attention to when you're not in a pandemic situation, but when everybody is suddenly affected by something so earth shattering as the early pandemic phase and the lockdowns and everybody's watching TV and reading the media, they're they're really under a microscope. So I, I'm curious your thoughts on on where you think the modeling efforts went well during the pandemic and where, you know, there are sort of lessons we can learn. Yeah. So where the modeling went well, I think in the very early days, there was too much uncertainty for almost any of the modeling Mm -hmm. work to be useful. Sure. And I think the amount of uncertainty in those results might've been communicated from the modelers themselves, but there's this big gap between the modelers themselves and being able to communicate uncertainty and people understanding uncertainty in modeling projections. And so the very early days modeling, I think was, you know, somewhere between helpful and not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I I just (laughs) want to emphasize that point. I mean, I I looked at the the early models and I saw large uncertainty bounds and, you know, as somebody, I don't know modeling uncertainty bounds the same way I know statistical uncertainty bounds, but I know what uncertainty bounds generally mean. And so, so it seems to me that was the responsible and right things to do, but we as a field, and I'm here including all forms of, of epidemiology, don't know how to communicate uncertainty very well. And so that seems like it it just got lost in translation and it, pre- it presented as if we knew with certainty or people just wanted to hear that there was some, you know, certainty to it because they wanted to be able to plan. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, so especially in the global community, wanted to be able to plan. So the Essential Supplies Forecasting Tool, the ESFT, developed by the World Health Organization, they wanted numbers so that they could get, you know, oxygen and PPE to the places that were going to need it, when they were going to need it. And sort of everyone was scrambling, you know, people needed a magic eight ball, you know, like what's going to happen. And we need to be right because otherwise the wrong things are going to go to the wrong places at the wrong time. And so I think there was an over-reliance on modeling estimates because there's nothing else to work with. I mean... You know. Well, but that seems to me important, right? Yeah. I mean, so it, it's it's one thing to say, you know, we have a model and it has this much uncertainty. And so the public shouldn't really put, you know, too much faith in the specific midpoint of that interval because we don't know what's going to happen. But if you are a decision maker who's got to actually marshal resources and move them, you're better off with a uh, uh, your best guess from a model than just you know, just throwing things anywhere. So it, it seems to me the models are are absolutely essential, but but it's when we go from what policymakers should be doing with them to what the public should be doing with it, or even in some okay. cases, what policymakers who don't really know what to do with those numbers do with it, that I think we run into trouble. And also the, the fact that we need to continually update models as we get more information. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. oftentimes people stick to what they were first working with. And so something might have evolved pretty substantially since the first time it was introduced, but the updated versions aren't, aren't integrated in the same way that they should have been. Yep. And I think modeling in general can be most effective when it can evaluate multiple different policy choices. Mm-hmm. So instead of being particularly predictive, I mean, we needed to do some type of predictive modeling to be able to send resources to the right places and sort of the best guess is yeah, better than nothing, right? Right. But how models can and should be sort of used in, in the policy sphere, especially, so not just resource allocation across countries, but also, you know, should we introduce rapid tests or not? Modeling can be really helpful to show, well... If rapid tests are introduced in certain places at certain times and people respond to these different levels of effect, this would be the 
effect that you could expect from rapid testing if people chose to self-isolate for to some degree after a positive yep. test. Yep. And then you could actually help see, okay, well, if we don't introduce this at all, this is what it looks like. This is what the epidemic looks like for the coming months. If we do introduce testing, only PCR, this is what it looks like because it's limited by the number of PCR tests a country could do. And if we could introduce rapid tests, then we would expect why. And then understanding sort of the expected costs and the expected impact of all those different strategies can actually aid decision making. But I think that often it's not used in the, in that way, which is a shame. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it seems to me there's there's a ton that we can learn and these are uh, incredibly useful models, but they also have to be interpreted with some some caution. Mm-hmm. There are two really great examples of that, that, that maybe we should we should comment on at least briefly. Yeah. One, I think, is the initial Ferguson model coming out of Imperial College in London, which, to paraphrase, said, you know, if things go on as they are, if we do nothing. If we do nothing. We're duped. Yeah. I think that was the the, the take-home message. Yep. And then the second one was the one that from uh, IHME, yep. which said it ain't going to be so bad. And it was much worse than that. Mm-hmm. So both of them, well, one can't really argue that Ferguson's model was wrong because we didn't do nothing. And and that was the point. Exactly. So we'll never know what would have happened if we had in fact done nothing. And thank God we didn't do nothing because I think things would have been worse. But it, it's still interesting to think about about these extremes because the, both of those have led to sort of vociferous criticisms of the of the of the method. I think, yeah, yeah, very, different uh, yeah approaches. So we, very different approaches, and the you know the 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 more extreme model, the one that said, was a model of what's going to happen if we do absolutely nothing, and that was not a very realistic scenario. But it was meant to just provide the this is what happens, this is what's going to happen if we if we do nothing. And I think it's been widely misinterpreted to mean this is what is going to happen, and that didn't happen. And therefore, they were wrong. Yeah. But that's not what they were saying. I, I totally agree. Right, but right. so this this gets to that that whole issue of, you know, what the models say and what they mean can be very different from what people hear from them and the way they, you know, get mediated through the media and or just how, you know, people with agendas or people who hear what they want to hear, you know, uh, or, or don't know how to interpret it, come away with this information. It can be very different from what the models actually say. And so I, I it's a it's a complicated, complicated topic that I think we need to we need to learn a lot more about if we when we face this scenario, if we face this scenario again, when we face this scenario again, when, 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 um, when. all right. So we are, we're, we're out of time on those two segments. So I'm, I'm going to end that conversation there, but I thought that was really, really fascinating. And I, I love to talk more about this. So we are then going to move on to our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing. Chris, what do you, what do you got? Well, I, I, I have two short things that okay. are, are, are loosely at best connected that have to do with, hot summers. Okay. And, and they, they are respectively drinking cold lager beer. Um, yeah. And I yeah, yeah. like lager beers in particular because I'm, I'm, like I'm not really, I'm not really a beer official. My, my, my wife has a much finer palate and she loves all sorts of complicated IPAs and I, I'm just, an, I'm an I just find them, you know, bitter and mostly taste like poisons me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, 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 like I, I don't simple. agree, but I understand. I, I understand. I, I'm a, I'm extremely low brow with my low and brow. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, that was terrible. Yes. Uh, and the second thing of course is watching fantastic movies while you're drinking those beers uh-huh. and they kind of go together. So I, I wanted to talk about one beer that I particularly like, which is Kirin beer. I don't know this beer. It, you do. It's the Japanese beer that you get at the sushi restaurant that's got sort of like a flaming dragon monster creature with a flowing tail and flames bursting out of its mouth, I think. Okay. That looks kind of like a dragon slash lion. Sure. Okay. And it's called a Kirin. 
Kirin. Okay. Are you familiar with this? I am not. Here, Kirin, you know, it's a Ichiban Shibori. No. No. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, I think it's probably the most famous Japanese beer. So Asahi could be more fair. I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a very popular Sapporo? beer in Japan and yep. quite tasty. Yeah. Okay. The thing that I find really interesting about this is, is that the word Kirin in Japanese also means giraffe. Okay. Well, Nick, Nick seems is to nodding know this. His head Nick is aware this. of the giraffe connection. Okay. Yeah. And, and I, I think that this is absolutely fascinating because the, 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 the mythical Kirin, the, the flaming lion dragon God flying through the sky was not a giraffe was less weird and more easily believed than the actual giraffe, which no one could wrap their heads around as there being would be possibly this, true. That there would be this creature out there with, with a, a 12 neck, foot so, neck yeah. covered with spots that would mm-hmm. eat, eat leaves from the top of the trees. And no one was buying that yeah. nonsense yeah, yeah, yeah. at all. The, the, and so as the, it made it sort of like gigantic transcontinental over the Silk Road pilgrimage of the story of the actual giraffe, it morphed into this fire dragon god. Wow. And I think that is just like an amazing sort of game of, of like reverse telephone. telephone yeah, yeah. That happened, you know, thousands of years ago. And the characters for writing the the name Kirin yep. in Japanese, and I assume it's the same in Chinese because Japanese characters are all from China originally, are are etymologically very interesting too. I'm, I'm not sure if you guys are study Japanese or Chinese characters at all. I assume you don't, but they're 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 formed out of little smaller characters called radicals, and the radicals themselves have sort of some symbolic meaning. And so complicated characters are usually a combination of three or four different radicals. And and sometimes they're put together just in ways that to make them phonetic. So like there's a dominant radical that sounds a certain way and that's just, you know, and it doesn't mean anything, but oftentimes they do mean things like the character for samurai, which is one of the few characters actually that originated in Japan as opposed to Chinese is a combination of the temple and a man. So he's the man of the temple. Oh, okay. And so it's like, it's, it's, you know, it's very interesting how some of them come to be, but the one with it for Kieran is very interesting because the left-hand radical in, in Kieran, in both of the first and the second characters for key is, stands for deer. And then adding to that is a, is a, is an unusual sort of grammatical character that usually means like that or that, that person. Yeah. So it's, it, but it's sort of a, it's like a declaration. It's like that deer. Mm-hmm. But but deer is not literal. It's like they they use the deer radical for all sorts of four legged animals. Okay, uh, you know deers, cows, horses, whatever. You know all sorts of dif- different. Probably not horses actually, but but many 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 animals have the deer radical in their name. And so it's not actually saying this is a deer, but is referring to the giraffe, right? That yeah. weird that deer, weird that weird deer. deer. And the second one also has the deer radical in it. But then the two subsidiary radicals, one is for rice and the other one is for outside. And the rice radical actually refers to the West. Okay. So where it came from, Africa. Oh, okay. Yeah. It came from the West. Yep. The story came from the West and, and the outside is obvious. It's like it's not West and not from here. Yeah. So it is the weird, is that weird deer that came far from the West that is not from here. That is what the word actually means. If you look at the That's radicals. That's very interesting. And I think that that is like super cool. And the other thing I wanted to just comment on is, is my very favorite movie of all time is The Third Man okay. by um, Carol Reed, excuse me, the British director Carol Reed. And it takes place in, in post-World War II Vienna. And it's all about smuggling of penicillin and, and skullduggery and this sort of weird murder. And it's a fantastic movie and it's got beautiful cinematography. But the thing I love about it is that the screenplay was written by Graham Greene, the famous British yep. author. 
Yep. who wrote quite a number of, of books that became screenplays, but yep. this one was right. unique in that he wrote it as a screenplay, okay. not as a book that became a screenplay. Okay. And it is one of his most famous, of course. And the cool thing I think about, about this whole sort of Graham Greene writing this book is that he, you know, Graham Greene, in addition to being sort of a, you know, an insightful observer of human nature and, and, you know, the gritty underside of things and the nature of man and the nature of our souls, even though he was an agnostic, you know, he had this very singular writing style. And one of the funniest anecdotes I know about Graham Greene is that in 1949, there was this magazine called The New Statesman that had a Graham Greene writing contest where people would submit entries to sound like Graham Greene. Uh-huh, yep. And he, under a pseudonym, entered this contest and lost. <laughs> I think it's very funny. He did get second prize, so he did oh, pretty right. well. He did okay. He did pretty well. <laughs> He's an okay Graham Greene. And in 1965, he did it again under a different pseudonym, and then this time only got an honorable mention. Oh, but that's the, not the best Graham Greene out there. The beautiful irony is that he, the, 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 the two paragraphs that he submitted as the, this is, this is trying, trying to sound like Graham Greene, he actually used it in a novel that he published. Oh. <laughs> So later on, I mean, it hadn't existed yet. Um, oh, that's very and I thought funny. that was very funny. And I was curious whether there are other, others like famous people who had been, who had failed to be recognized for who they are. And it turned out that Charlie Chaplin, who was a friend of Graham Greene's when they lived together in Geneva of all places, they were very close friends somehow. And he had entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest and came in third. So I think this, these things happen a lot. Anyway, that's, that's all I wanted to. I love it. They've got nothing to do with anything. But no, you know. they don't have to. They yeah. don't have to. We don't expect that from Chris. Yeah. All right, Brooke, what do you got? All right. So something I, I thought was sweet and entertaining. So I think Chris and I were both present in the Netherlands during a very big storm. So, and by oh storm in the Netherlands, they mean wind. <laughs> it okay. doesn't mean lightning. It doesn't mean, it just means wind. And headline from newspaper in, in Rotterdam that day or on the news site was the headline, wind blows hard, man loses hat. And there's a video mm. of the man, his hat blowing off. Then Important man, stuff. man finds hat, <laughs> man reunited with hat, all like... That makes the news. In the <laughs> it's a classic. It's a classic story. Everybody can relate to it. That this reminds me of the words I've learned in Dutch, which is "vishkikelik." Vishkikelik, which means horrible weather. <laughs> <laughs> I, you hear this quite a lot in the winter. I heard it over and over and over, and eventually I looked it up, and I was like, "Oh." <laughs> and you know the Minions movie, Despicable Me. Yep. In, yeah. In Dutch, it's "vishkikelike ikke." Uh huh. So, that makes sense. Despicable me. Yeah. See. Yeah. I love despicable it. Weather. Okay. All right. This this hurricane that that Brooke describes happened quite early while I was in, in Utrecht, and I was working late that night. It was a Friday night, and I was you know in the last one in the hospital. Everyone else had got the news that the weather was terrible and went home, and I didn't get the news because I didn't speak any Dutch at that point and had no like contact with the outside world. So I was completely within my bubble. So I came out of the office at seven p.m. and I was like, it was very windy, and I was like, oh my gosh. This, very windy today. And, you know, the weather had been horrible for weeks. And so I was like, wow, this is, you know, even, even for like the horrible weather in the Netherlands, this is particularly horrible. So I got on my bicycle and started to ride home and I was like, my God, it's windy. This is really windy. And I'm just like struggling to even move. 
move forward at all with the wind like practically knocking me off my bicycle. It's like, wow, this is really windy and the trees are down. I'm like, windy and kind of dangerous too. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) and eventually I got home. completely ignored the stay-at-home orders. Completely ignored. Yep. Sounds like Chris. The next morning I I learned reading the news that there had been a massive, this was the Washington Post or something, that there had been a massive hurricane in the Netherlands and a bunch of people had died after being hit by trees. Oh, awful. um, Awful. I was completely unaware and just shocked at how bad the weather was in the Netherlands. Yeah. So. All right. Well, so I'm I'm going to skip mine today because I have one that I'm actually excited to talk about and we are out of time and I don't want to have to rush it. So I'm going to save mine for next time and call an end to this one. So Brooke, thank you so much for, for joining us. It was a fantastic conversation. Thanks for having me. I'll see you back in the Netherlands. There you go. So that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthEx or you can tweet any one of us individually. I decided I'm going to stop listing all of our individual Twitter feeds because I think people know them by now. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast. And she is the source of my amazing and amusing for next time. And Nick Guler for sound editing and all kinds of fantastic sound effects, which you refuse to use. And I am very upset about you're going to have to add them in after the fact. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you'll download our next episode. 